0: Amen. So today, if you were to ask me, if you were to say, Todd, what's the most effective time of the week for our staff here? I might say to you, Monday's at 9.30. We gather together for our staff meeting. We have a different rotation schedule we use based on what what the week is. But we get together every Monday at 9.30 and pray and meet and talk, report. I might say... um, It's uh, maybe Monday afternoon when our teaching elders usually get together for study group and we look at several passages of the upcoming weeks and we kind of banter them and talk about them and investigate them. That's maybe a view I would have, but if you were to be in heaven and ask the Lord, what's the most effective time of the week for the staff at First Family? I think he would say Wednesday at 11 o'clock. Why Wednesday at 11 o'clock? That's when our staff gathers to do one thing, pray. Now, if I could speak on behalf of our staff and say to you, they probably at that moment feel like, man, I'm not getting much done. Why? Because they've been raised in America, (laughs) probably, you know. I mean, we just love to get stuff done, and we don't feel like if we're stationary on our knees, what are we doing, right? But did you know that prayer is our first and best action. And the church said what? But it's hard to believe that sometimes when you feel like you're immobilized, don't you? I mean, am I the only guy that sometimes feel like I'm just praying? You ever heard someone say that? I'll, I'll, I'll at least pray for you. Like, well, <laughs> that's not just something we do at least. That's not just something. Prayer is our first and best action. So why is it that our, our perspectives often differ? We feel like we're most effective at other times, but if from heaven's perspective, I would say that our most effective times, personally and even as a staff, are when we're praying. It's because when we pray, we're partnering with God in the unleashing of His sovereign, powerful will. So how do you know that? This is exactly why James references Elijah in chapter 5. Will you flip over to James 5 for a moment? We're not going to be here long. We're just going to be here long enough to see this example that James uses about prayer. We're going to see what he says about Elijah in these couple of verses. Then we're going to dig a little deeper in the story of Elijah. Today, especially when we're talking about prayer, and we're going to see what Elijah would teach us about this issue. This is one of our timeouts in this current series. And here's what what James says about Elijah. You'll notice in verse 16, I believe he kind of comes to the real culminating point of this last paragraph. Tony taught this passage last week. I'll not repeat that. You can go to our website and hear his message. I do think the word therefore in verse 16 brings us to kind of uh, the, the point of James about prayer. He says, so confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. In other words, prayer matters. And then he even brings another focus to prayer. He says, the prayer of a righteous person has great Power as it is working. And then his next word is a name. What's the next word? Say it with me. Elijah. So Elijah must be an example of someone who knows about the great power of prayer. Make sense? It's not hard to figure out. He says we should pray for one another. There's great power in prayer. And then he says, oh, and Elijah is one who knows about this. Here's what he says. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. And he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. Would you not agree with me? That's an amazingly powerful prayer if you can control the weather. (laughs) Now, there's more to that than than that tongue-in-cheek comment. Because prayer is not our control. Prayer is partnering with God as he unleashes his will and his control. But I say that to get the point here. James is saying, wow, you, th- you want to see how powerful prayer is? Look at Elijah. He prayed. It didn't rain. He prayed again. It did rain. That's a lot of power, isn't it? So let's investigate that, can we? This mention of Elijah in James 5 is a reference to First Kings chapters 17 and 18. So flip over there. And let's take a few minutes and look at the story of Elijah and and the um, narrative of the rain and no rain. And let's learn some things about prayer. My goal is to read just a few select portions from these chapters. I'm going to give you two aspects to prayer that I think these teach us from the life of Elijah with a couple of action points as well. Then my goal is to maybe take some questions. I'll try to get done a little earlier than normal with the textual portions. We can take maybe more questions about prayer. Um, And then we'll close with maybe just a simple illustration of how prayer works. Uh, Maybe a contemporary understanding or illustration of that. So here's the story, the narrative referenced by James. It somewhat begins in chapter 17. Look at verse 1 with me. 1 Kings chapter 17 Now Elijah the Tishbite of Tishbe in Gilead said to Ahab, and you recall Ahab was a very wicked king, As the Lord the God of Israel lives before whom I stand, there shall be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word. Now he's just laying out this prophetic promise delivered by God through his prophet to the king. And so... He delivers this, and then the word of the Lord came to Elijah and said, Depart from here and turn eastward and hide yourself by the brook Cherith, which is east of the Jordan. You shall drink from the brook, and I have commanded the ravens to feed you there. So God is supernaturally now taking care of his prophet while he and the others wait for this promise of judgment, by the way, to be fulfilled. And so Elijah went and did according to the word of the Lord, and he went and lived by the brook Cherith. He was a camper, but he would have come to family camp for sure. He went and lived by the brook Cherith that is east of the Jordan. And the ravens brought him bread and meat in the morning and bread and meat in the evening. And he drank from the brook. But if there's no rain for a while, what will happen? The brook will naturally dry up. This is what occurs. The author then tells us. And after a while, the brook dried up, indicating that there was no what? Rain. Rain. So what Elijah prophesied, what God had declared would happen, came true, the brook dried up because there was no rain in the land. And then all of the ensuing effects of that, from famine, and agricultural issues, economic issues. Well, James says, and I think Jesus also says, that was about a a three-and-a-half-year period. It got so bad that later in chapter 18... You'll just flip the page to the right. It was upsetting the king. It was upsetting the queen. It was a problem in Israel because when Elijah did show himself to Ahab, and we're skipping through several years here, but he shows himself to Ahab. Ahab says, is it you, you troubler of Israel? Now, what that word means is this. Oh, the king is seeing the prophet. He says, oh, so you're the reason we don't have any rain you're the problem in the land. It's because of what you've said and what you've done. you brought this trouble. And what does Elijah say to him? He says, no, I, am, I have not troubled Israel, but you have and your father's house because you have abandoned the commandments of the Lord and followed the Baals. So he pinpoints the real problem. And I'll say more in a moment about this, but the rain, the lack of rain... The fulfillment of God's word was in response to their breaking of the covenant. I'll, go, I'll get there in a minute. And so God punished and judged Ahab and the land and the people in order to bring them back. Okay? Did Elijah pray that this would come true? And did it, was Elijah the means by which God accomplished it? Yes. But it was really simply a fulfillment of God's sovereign will. It wasn't Elijah's fault as the king was trying to blame him. It was God exercising what he had promised earlier in bringing his people back. We'll say more in a minute. Just understand, at some near, somewhere near the end, Elijah's getting the blame. He's showing himself to Ahab. This leads to a showdown between Ahab and his men, his prophets, and Elijah. And that's what we know as the story of Mount Carmel or in Hebrew, Mount Carmel. So they meet up there, and you know the story, the 400 plus prophets can do nothing to distinguish the sacrifice on the altar. Elijah simply prays to the God of heaven. God sends fire in verse 38 of chapter 18. It consumes the burnt offering, the wood, the stones, the dust. And this simple powerful act of God in response to Elijah's prayer is one of the things God used to bring repentance in that immediate moment. Now, on the heels of that incredible, um, I wouldn't say conflict, but that, that moment of battle when Elijah slew the prophets and God proved powerful, look at verse 41 now of chapter 18. It appears we're nearing the end of the last three or three and a half years. He says, "Now Elijah," he says to Ahab, "Go up and eat and drink, for there is the sound of the rushing of rain." Elijah knew that now the people were returning; they were seeing God as powerful. His judgment had worked, at least temporarily. Now they've not gone into captivity yet officially, but there were highlights and moments they'd return to God and then fall away again. This is one of the moments in which they did see God as the only God. You can see that in the first part of, excuse me, verse twenty-seven of verse thirty-seven of chapter eighteen. And so he says, You go up, Ahab, and you're going to hear the sound of the rushing of rain. So it, it's going to rain soon. So Ahab went up to eat and to drink, and Elijah went up to the top of the mount of Mount Carmel, and he bowed himself down on the earth and put his face between his knees. That single phrase there should be Circle in your Bible, and you draw the line to your margin, write James 5.17 there. Here's the exact reference that James is talking about. When did Elijah pray? This is the Old Testament reference to Elijah praying, bowing himself down on the earth and putting his face between his knees. By the way, heard a man mention this week, this is an interesting observation, that's a pretty uncomfortable posture for prayer, isn't it? I mean, to squat in that manner to put your face between your knees. That's not exactly the most comfortable position, but here's the position he took. He prays, and he's praying for rain even while he's assured it's coming. Verse 43 gives us more insight. He says to his servant, Go up now, look toward the sea. And he went up and looked, and he said, Elijah, there's nothing. So he said to his servant, Go again seven times. And the seventh time... Here's what the servant said. Behold, a little cloud like a man's hand is rising from the sea. Now, perhaps there's a reference to how it looked on the horizon. It may have been a large cloud, but far away it seemed like just, you know, a small hand. But the servant saw a cloud forming. He knew rain was coming. What Elijah said in verse 41 is going to come true again. And so he says, you get word, Ahab." Tell him this, prepare your chariot and go down lest the rain stop you. You don't want to get flooded in, flooded out. The roads are probably, you know, not like our roads. Lots of quick, torrential rain would have made it very impossible to, to navigate your way uh, through some of those dirt roads and the gravel and so forth. So he says, you'd better get moving, Ahab. It's going to be a torrential downpour. And in a little while, the heavens grew black with clouds and wind, and there was, say it with me, Great rain. And Ahab rode and went to Jezreel. And the hand of the Lord was on Elijah. And he gathered up his garment and ran before Ahab to the entrance of Jezreel. That's an amazing verse, isn't it? It appears Ahab ran faster. Excuse me. Elijah ran faster than Ahab's chariot. Now, some would say that it's because on the way down the mountain, the chariot had to kind of zigzag his way. You may not take a straight shot. And some would say Elijah probably took a straighter shot running down the mountain. I tend to think that the phrase, the hand of the Lord was on Elijah, is indicative that it was a supernatural mir- miracle. The kind I'm hoping for next Saturday when I run down to dam, right? A, a little bit of extra, extra power as you're running. But Elijah took off, beat the chair. You ever wondered why was he trying to get to the same place Ahab was going? I think it's because he was wondering this. When Ahab gets back and tells his wife Jezebel, it rained just like what, what we saw happen is what God had promised. I tend to think Ahab was hoping that would turn Jezebel's heart, that she wouldn't keep killing the prophets. Why do I think that? It's because the very next line of the author's book, which by the way, there's no chapter in verse divisions. The, the author here mentions Jezebel next. Ahab Got to Jezreel, Elijah ran even faster than the chariots. Why? He was hoping, I think, that Jezebel would respond favorably to the Lord's work, but she didn't. What she did was she said, Elijah, by this time tomorrow, you'll be dead too. And we'll say more about that in a minute as well. But this is the story that James references, where Elijah prays that it will not rain in response to what he knew God's command was in Deuteronomy it doesn't rain. Then a showdown with the prophets of Baal. God proves more powerful, most powerful. He prays that it will rain and it does rain. That's powerful praying. Would you not agree? This is the kind of praying, James says, is effective. And it's powerful. So what do we learn about prayer from these kind of narratives? From James, even one or two sentences about Elijah. What can we learn? I want to bring two aspects to you. One's going to be a little heady, a little seminary-like, but just hang with me. You'll, you need to know this. One's going to be much more street-level, shoe-leatherish, all right? First of all, there's a theological aspect to, the, to prayer and the power of God that I want you to understand, all right? And we see this in Elijah's interaction with God and his participation with God in the fulfillment of God's will. Listen very carefully. I'm going to say things that at times you'll probably think that contradicts what you said earlier. How can they both exist? Just hang with me. I'll do the best I can to try to walk you through this. In Deuteronomy chapter 28, we have God saying to the Israelites, if you obey me, I will bless you. This is under the Mosaic covenant, all right? If you disobey, I will curse you. Part of the cursing, if you look at verses 23 and 24 of Deuteronomy 28, is this right here. Listen very carefully. He's speaking of if they disobey and how the Lord will send them curses. The heavens over your head shall be bronze. The earth under you shall be iron. The Lord will make the rain of your land powder. From heaven, dust shall come down on you until you are destroyed. In other words, there'll be no rain. If you disobey me, I'll use a famine, a lack of rain to draw you back to myself. I believe that These years of no rain are exactly that. They're a fulfillment of what God promised in Deuteronomy chapter 28. They're part of the cursings that he said he would bring under the Mosaic covenant. Now, does that mean that Elijah's prayers were of no value? It doesn't. Does it mean that if Elijah hadn't have prayed, God would not have kept his word? It doesn't. Here's, here's the way we theologically explain this. Listen very carefully. Prayer is the ordained means by which God accomplishes his will. Say the words ordained means with me. Ordained means. You see, God not only uh, ordains the end of his will, he also ordains the means by which he accomplishes it. So when God said in Deuteronomy, if you disobey me, I will bring rain and I'll bring famine. There'll be no rain in order to bring you back to repentance. That's his, will. That's, his, that's his sovereign promise. So when they disobeyed, when they set up idols and they worshiped Baal, they gathered prophets to tickle the itching ears. When Jezebel killed God's true prophets, when all this was going on, God kept his word and brought a famine to bring them back. How did God accomplish that? He did that through the means of prayer. You see, he ordained both the end and the means. And if you think really long and hard about this, you'll find yourself in a wonderful place that will lead you to worship God. Why? Because you won't be able to figure all of this out, okay? Because you may say to yourself, well, then do we really need to pray if God is in control and his will is sovereign and he's fully able to do what he wills Uh, yes we need to pray because you may think well i don't think we need to pray but we do prayers are of dependence upon god it's also ordained by god as the means by which he accomplishes his will so these are things you have to kind of hold in both hands and say how they fit i'm not sure but god commands us to pray in order to to see his will accomplished and yet we don't hold god at bay or stop his will or leverage him does that make sense God's not our puppet and prayer is not the string. And yet, do we pray for God to show His power? Yes. So I want you to join me in this boat of just realizing, wow, this is one of those theological areas that can, can sometimes be hard to grasp. The best word to use is the ordained means by which God accomplishes His will. Prayer is one of those. So when God promised Israel that he would do whatever necessary to bring them back to himself. He did that through one of his prophets who prayed that it would not rain, and it didn't, and God's will in Deuteronomy was proven true as the people came back to him, at least temporarily. I hope that makes a little bit of sense to you and gives you some indication of the theological aspect of prayer and God's power. Let me give you some other examples in the New Testament. Do you recall when we were instructed in the New Testament to pray the Lord of the harvest that he will send forth workers into his field? On that, you should nod and say, yes, I remember that. Good, okay, right. That's what we're asked to pray. Notice we're not asked to pray, uh, interestingly enough, for the harvest. We're asked to pray that there will be workers for the harvest. So, will God bring everyone of his family to the throne. Yes. Without a doubt. He said Jesus himself said not one of them will be lost. We have great confidence that God will will reap the harvest of the earth and collect every single person that's to believe. How is God going to do that? When the people of God pray that he'll send forth workers into his field. Does that make sense? Now, you can debate and argue how that fits all day long. I would much rather have you and I just take a posture of obedience and say God has asked us to pray for workers in the field because that's his ordained means by which he will accomplish the ingathering of every single one of his children. Do you recall when Jesus instructed the disciples to pray, one of the very first things he said to them was this, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth As it is in heaven. You recall that? It's called the Lord's Prayer. That's what he used to teach them how to pray. We're looking at that, in fact, beginning next week for three weeks. We're going to have a special ministry on prayer. Keep this topic going. We're going to use the Lord's Prayer as our basis for three weeks of instruction on how to pray like Jesus taught. One of the first things he says is this we're to pray, and here's one thing we're to say is your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Do you think that if you don't pray, God's kingdom won't come? You're kind of stumped. I'm not how to answer that, Todd. It was a trick question. No, God's kingdom, God's consummated kingdom is guaranteed. Hallelujah, church. Amen? But yet, what are you to do, in the words of, I think it's Peter, to hasten the coming of the day of the Lord? We won't debate the meaning of that word right now. But what are we to do? This verse says to do what? Pray. So again, you have this conundrum of sorts. We're to pray for God's kingdom to come. And yet, guess what? His kingdom will come. So there's a theological aspect to God's power and prayer. And here's what it is. The theological aspect is that we, in prayer, we see the accomplishment of God's will. It's the means by which we partner and position ourselves to see God's will unleashed. Whether you get all of that or whether I understand it all or can explain it as well as a seminary prof or a college teacher, We'll leave that to other people. Just know the Bible lays out multiple examples of these two things working hand in hand. God being God in every sense of the word, sovereign, immutable, in control, powerful, working history towards a a definitive end. And yet, in the course of all that, using the ordained means of the prayers of his people to accomplish every bit of it. I just want to say to you, I'm glad that God is that big. To be able to balance and use all of that, even when I sometimes struggle to know how it all makes sense. All right? So, know that when you're praying, you are partnering with God in the accomplishment of His will. Let me repeat that to you. When you pray, you are partnering with God in the accomplishment of His will. What a privilege. Amen, church? What a humble privilege. Which is why, here's the action point for this kind of un- part. I would say point your prayers to God's will. Often we pray in, um, in regards to things that, and I'm not, I don't think they're wrong. I don't think they're unimportant, but they, they may be what we call secondary. And I don't want to list them here because there's many of them. I would just encourage you, at least when you start to pray, Start with what matters most, and that is God's will and what is known about God's will. Pray for His kingdom to come. Pray for workers to go to the field. Pray for your sanctification, specifically 1 Thessalonians says that you abstain from sexual fornication. Pray for generosity among God's people. Pray for endurance in suffering. These are all things Scripture completely, definitively, uh, unequivocally lays out as God's will. So if you want to see that accomplished, pray in accordance with God's will mostly, all right? This this does not mean that your needs don't matter because in the Lord's Prayer, we also see that He says we should pray for God to meet our needs. Give us this day our daily bread. So we're not, don't hear what I'm not saying. I'm just asking you to have a primary focus when you pray on God's will being accomplished. Here's one thing A.W. Tozer said about this issue that I think is quite insightful. I picked this book up Thursday, maybe Wednesday. was at a pastor's conference with our staff. I sat down to read the rest of it on Friday morning, and, and this is a really interesting aspect here. Tozer says this about prayer and about God's will. He says, we do not pray in order to persuade God to change his mind. Prayer is not an assault upon the reluctance of God nor an effort to secure a suspension of his will for us or for those for whom we pray. Prayer is not intended to overcome God or, quote-unquote, move his arm. What the praying man does is to bring his will into line with the will of God so that God can do what he has all along been willing to do. Thus, prayer changes the man and enables God to change things in answer to man's prayer. And I'm sure someone could pick that apart as well. Just a man's words. But I think he does a good job there of trying to balance these two things and show us when we pray, we are praying and partnering with God to see the accomplishment of His will. Real quickly, can I tell you five ways to pray uh, and uh, to point your prayers at God's will? Just jot these down real quick, would you? Pray biblically. Pray generally. Pray specifically. Pray daily. And pray personally. Now, this is all adverbs that describe a God's will kind of prayer. But I think they help us in in pointing our prayers to God's will, to pray biblically. In other words, use Scripture to help you understand what is God's will. I'm going to pray to that end. And you can pray with confidence. I think this is what's behind the idea of you'll receive anything if you ask in my name that's according to my will. It's kind of just behind 1 John 5, 14 there. Pray biblically, pray generally, nothing wrong with that for God's kingdom to come. There's also room and reason to pray specifically. Pray daily and pray personally. Just each of those are ways that we can pray and point it to God's will. God, use me to work out your will. Let your will work in me in regards to sanctification, other things. So I just want to make sure you understand, in Elijah's situation, he was personally involved, yes. He prayed that it would not rain, he prayed that it would rain, and God used that. His prayer was effective. James says it was powerful, but what was it powerful to do? It was apparently powerful to unleash what was already revealed as God's will. So Elijah, in no uncertain terms, partnered with God in the unleashing of God's sovereign will. So wrestle with that. Let it encourage you think through it. It's the theological aspect of prayer in God's power. There's one that you'll probably smile more about because right now your faces are pretty grimaced. There's one you're going to smile more about. It's called the personal aspect of prayer in God's power. And this is also seen in Elijah because he no sooner is finished praying for it to rain seven times, by the way, and the great clouds form and the great rain falls. This happens. We're no sooner through with that Then Jezebel says, I'm going to kill you. He gets fearful. And a little over a month later, we find him in a cave, verse 9, lodged there, running from Jezebel and Ahab and fearful that she's going to keep her word and kill him. It's about a month or more after the showdown, after the rain. And notice what happens. I'm just going to point out a couple of verses he, he kind of explains to the Lord his depression, his despondency, his um, perspective, which isn't exactly correct. And in verse, um, I think it's where it says that the, the Lord passed by, and a great and strong wind tore the mountains and broke in pieces the rocks before the Lord. You see that? Verse 11. But the Lord was not in the wind, after that, an earthquake. Then a fire. See, God wasn't in any of those. Here's Elijah now standing, wanting to see God. And, and God's not in any of these great and powerful acts that were reminiscent of the Mount Carmel situation. God wasn't in any of these. The earthquake, the fire, the wind. But then it says this. Then a still, small voice, or as the ESV says, the sound of a low whisper. The actual best Hebrew rendering is the idea of silence. In other words, there was nothing going on like what had just happened. There was, it wasn't the earthquake, the fire, or the wind. There was a stillness, a silence. And that is an interesting play on words here. That's what Elijah heard. Elijah heard silence. That's where the Lord spoke to him and said, I'm with you. I'm present with you. So how do you know that, Todd? Because it says in verse 13, he wrapped his face in his cloak and he went out and he stood at the entrance of the cave and behold, there came a voice to him. God was in that moment of still silence. Now what you'll notice is this. This is very ironic and interesting. What Elijah says in in verse 14 is very similar to what he said previously. It's not any different. So what's the difference? How did God's presence really make... Uh, It really matter to Elijah. What was the personal effect of this time of prayer, of this personal interaction with God? Not in something grand and big, but in something simple and small and still and silent. I think it's in this. The Lord next instructs him what to do. He says, go return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus. And he gives Elijah some instructions. I think it was in this moment of prayer that Elijah was affirmed and refreshed that God was with him. You see, I think Mount Carmel was all about the confirmation of God's power. I think the experience in the cave was about the confirmation of God's presence. And one was more about the accomplishment of God's sovereign will. The other is about the encouragement of God's people. You see, that's the personal aspect of prayer and God's power. That as his will unfolds, in all of its grandeur and glory and majesty. Sometimes we can think, wow, this is hard. This is difficult. This is tough. And it's in those very moments that God will come to you in a very personal, still, and perhaps even silent way and assure you, He is with you. That He hears your prayers, that he knows your heart. And when he asks you to do what he wants you to do next, he will be with you. That's very personal. I think that's one of the reasons James says in James 5, we'll go back there for a moment. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. (laughs) Like he was prone to times of despondency, perspective that wasn't exactly right. And yet he prayed and God did incredibly powerful things and yet that same Elijah knew this God was very personal and in a cave all by himself on the run for his life God met him at that moment of need said I'm with you you continue to obey I am with you prayer is that place in which we realize watch this God is with us I love the way the Great Commission ends, by the way. You know, it's the command we've been given. And it's how God will, in one sense, just unleash his will as we make disciples of all nations, right? But what does the last phrase say? And lo, I am with you always. So as we're involved in the unleashing and outworking of God's will, what does God promise? To be with us. One of the ways we are assured and, uh, and aware of his presence is in prayer let me ask you a question is personal private prayer with god part of your normal life and i'm not asking for an amount of time i'm not necessarily asking for a place there's all kinds of different opinions on that i'm just asking over the overarching principle do you and god spend personal time together talking You pray to God in secret. That's how Matthew... Jesus actually referred to that. Matthew records it. When you pray to God, go to your closet and pray in secret and your Father who's in secret will hear you. He'll reward you. I was amazed what Luke 5, 16 said to me this week. It's a moment when Jesus Christ is just pressured by lots of crowds and it says that He he left the crowds and then there's an interesting word. He says he, He left the crowds and went away to a desert place to pray as He frequently... Did Now, to be frank with you, we don't have a lot of those recorded in the New Testament. We have a lot of the, the stories about God unleashing His will, correct? Healings, deliverances, um, Christ's journey to the cross. The, the authors, the writers chose to record for us that which was important to understand for Christ's mission. But that little phrase is interesting. Tucked away inside all of these stories about God's will being unleashed and, and proven is the simple phrase that in the middle of all that, Jesus Christ frequently left the crowds and found a quiet place to pray. Man, I, I was reading that and just convicted. I hate to, to run towards the crowds. Are you that way? If it's busier, it's better. Man, if, we're, if it's larger, it must really be God's hand. And hey, if I'm not feeling good, let's find some people to hang out with because I'll feel better. They'll make me feel better. And you have all these thoughts about, but Jesus actually found private Times with God in prayer as the source for his encouragement and refreshment it's exactly what Elijah did God met him in this private still place it's what David did in 1 Samuel 30 a tragic very tough story when no one else could appeal or or help David it says that David refreshed himself in the Lord I want to challenge you as your pastor here's an action point for you pursue private times of prayer I realize I'm barking up a tree here that's very difficult. Most of us, if we were to quantitatively write down how much time we pray privately, it perhaps would be in single digits. Even right now, you're like, man, I'm not sure I want to talk about this subject. (laughs) But I, I tend to think that private prayer undergirds anything that God would want to unleash publicly. in fact, public prayer by our church's leaders is mere pretense if it's not undergirded by a life of private prayer. and how someone sounds from this platform, what they say and how they to what, what, what you think of them, it, it must be supported by a private, like a life of private prayer. time with God. You see, that's the personal aspect of prayer and God's power. It is big enough that it partners us with His will, and yet it is personal enough that when you're alone with God, He takes care of you. In fact, just before I take a few questions, I think this is the reason for the example, by the way. Some people have wondered, why the example of the land? Elijah prayed, and it says that it didn't rain, then it did rain, and then it says the, the earth its fruit. I think the land is a picture of that parched, dry person. But in prayer, God's power is unleashed even personally to bring refreshment and revival. So I, I want you to think about prayer with me today and this week. The theological aspects of it, yes. As well as the personal aspects, to this end, that you, this week, would pray. What good would it be to learn about prayer, even its deepest mysteries of finite beings interacting with an infinite God, or even its personal aspects? What good would any of that be if at some point today, Tuesday, or Friday, or anything in between, we don't take a posture on a knee and say, God of the heavens, let's talk. I want you to pray. Our elders, our deacons, our staff, we want you to pray. This is why we learn about prayer, amen? So that we not only hear God's word, but say it with me, we do it. So in a single sentence, can we wrap a lot of this up? Here's what I'd say is a good way to kind of summarize some things about Elijah from 1 Kings 17, 18, 19, as well as James 5. Read this with me. Prayer positions us to partner with God in the powerful unleashing of His sovereign will. That powerful unleashing, it's very personal, no doubt. God will minister and affirm His presence to you, and yet He will work mightily through you and around you. And prayer is the position that that, that enables us to partner with God as he unleashes his powerful sovereign will. Let's take a couple of questions if we have any. Good, we have two, Jill says. Let's see what happens here on this deep uh, subject for sure. How do you keep your mind from wandering while praying? Okay, no verse tells us, but let me tell you what I do. Uh, so this is an opinion, but it's one that is proven effective through experience, all right? Um. I talk just above a whisper. I think one of the transformative moments in my prayer life was when we were living in Georgia. I don't know if Julie remembers this, but we had a... Um, uh, she remembers living in Georgia. And I not mean that. that was, <laughs> she didn't remember this exact moment, but we had a, a room that um, Bethany uh, Bethany's crib was in. And so sometimes I'd go in there and there's a, a place I could pray. And so I would just kneel there and pray silently and I'd always find myself sleeping. <laughs> we only had two kids then they were both little and we were very active and just, sometimes I was just tired it was early and you know when you're, when you're a parent often the m- early mornings of the time when you have a little bit of time to yourself but I would just always fall asleep. i think man I'm, I'm the worst I'm the worst Christian the you know most rottenest saint and, and then I began to, to just say my prayers and speak to God just above I could hear myself just above a whisper. And I didn't fall asleep anymore. And so I just have always prayed that way since that day. It also helps this. It will not only keep you from sleeping, hopefully. It will make you much more aware of your sinfulness. See, when we're praying in our minds, um, you, you don't know how depraved you really are, I don't think. But say out loud what you thought about that person, that moment of lust, that thought that entered your head. Let your ears hear that vile, sinful moment. And then when you realize, man, I'm I'm a wicked, I'm a wicked sinner that God by his grace has bestowed grace upon and then you realize that in those moments, God's grace is enough to just forgive and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. First John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just. And suddenly in those moments of just whispering your prayers, both confession prayers as well as um, you know, requests and stuff, it, it does something to your awareness of your own condition and to the holiness and majesty of God. So a lot of good things happen when you... Stop praying in your mind, so to speak, and pray just above a whisper. You can't always do that in public gatherings, but I doubt you're going to fall asleep too much in a public gathering. Hopefully not, right? That's just an answer to the question. I keep my mind wandering from praying or while praying by simply speaking just above a whisper to where you can hear yourself, all right? By the way, while I'm on that question, let me say this. It's not about wandering, but if you ever want to know how to teach someone to pray, I would encourage you to actually pray with them. When the disciples asked Jesus, Lord, teach us to pray, what did he do? He actually prayed. He gave them a model prayer. Maybe this morning we should have just said, okay, we're going to pray to teach you how to pray. I don't know. Instead of preaching about prayer, maybe we should have prayed. I'm simply saying that this same idea of praying out loud is one of the best ways to learn how to pray, to teach your kids how to pray, and to keep your mind from wandering while praying. And um, so I just pray out loud every time you can. There's an answer to the question. Is there one more, Jill? I knew this was coming. This is an if question. I always struggle on these, I'm sure. If prayer is ordained by God as the means to accomplish His will, is it theologically incorrect to say things like, I didn't pray, but God would have done it anyway? Or, I prayed, but God would have accomplished His will anyway? Is it theologically incorrect to say things like that? I might be forced to say it's not theologically incorrect. Um, My intention on bringing to you the theological aspect was not to try to get you not to pray. uh, My point was not to get you to underestimate the value of prayer, though. All right? It's to teach you to value the vast majesty of God who could say to us, Men are always to pray and not to faint. Luke 18. A God who does this. Watch this. Revelation 5, Revelation 8. Who apparently, and this is going to astound some of you, who apparently stores and saves the prayers of the saints in an altar. And one day an angel or the four living creatures and the 24 elders will take those prayers with incense and offer them to God before the consummation of the world. I would say to you, the prayers, of our, the prayers of all the saints are being stored and saved, and they're being used by God to bring about the end of the world, the consummated kingdom. I believe that. So I don't want you to think, oh, it doesn't matter if I don't pray or if I do pray. That's not my point. My point was to show you theologically just how vast and big our God is, that he could ordain something as simple as praying on a human's part, and with that, bring amazing powerful changes to the world even the very completion of his final will so if, if that didn't come across well if I minimized that my apologies but my goal was not to get us to, try to maybe split hairs my goal was to drive us to our knees and to obey our Lord who yes theologically and technically doesn't need our prayers or anything God doesn't need us to reach the world to be frank with you He could do it as a spoken word. He created the world by speaking it into existence in milliseconds. Are you with me? Could God save every one of His children He's elected in a single word? Yes! But how amazing that He, in all of His glory, would choose to use lowly mankind to make disciples of all nations, to pray that folks would go to the field. How amazing that God would do that. So the theological Focus on that was to lift God, not us. Okay. The answer to the question, I guess, technically, you wouldn't be incorrect, but you might be a little spiritually cold. I've got to close. I'll need to save the rest of this stuff for another week. I hope that you are this week will be driven to prayer. Okay, that you'll be you'll go to the throne of God. And you will partner with him and position yourself as he unleashes his will and in the middle of that personally ministers and intercedes for you.